Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Well, good morning. I had an inspirational story I was going to open with. But there's two problems with it. One, it has nothing to do with the sermon. And two, I didn't bring a copy of it. Do you still want to hear it? I can share the version from memory. How many said, no, Scott, we only, if, if you bring a copy next week and we'll listen. Would you prefer me to read it or just share it with you from memory? It might not be as good. All right, here we go. I, Russ, Russ spoke first. Anyway. So it's a little inside thing there. It's what, three weeks in a row or did I miss last week? Okay, all right. So there's this uh, story, and maybe you've seen this. I just read it for the first time the other day, this, this incredible account of a guy who uh, was on, uh, I don't know if it was a safari or something. He encountered this elephant that, that, that was kind of limping and stuff, and, and it was just kind of, kind of whining. And, and it, was a, it was a young, young elephant, you know, and he went up to it, and, and, this, and he kept lifting his foot, whatever they call it, Are the elephants have hooves or what, what are they? his foot anyway, his, his claw, and, uh, and there was some jagged uh, piece, of, it was bigger than a splinter, this, this sharp piece of wood in there, and this guy's like, you know, should I do this, and he reaches up there, and he pulls this thing out, and, and the elephant just kind of nuzzles him for a second, and then limps off into the jungle, and uh, 20 years later, he's at a zoo, 20 years later, he's at a zoo, and there's an elephant, a full-grown elephant, and as he, gets, he, as he got near the, uh, the display, this elephant starts trumpeting, and lifting his foot, trumpeting, lifting his foot. And the guy goes up there, could it possibly be? And he just, he just knew, he just knew it was the, the same elephant, and he ran over there, and he ran up to the cage, and the elephant lifted up his foot, and the guy's looking, and the elephant grabs him with his trunk, picks him up, slams him back and forth, beats him to a bloody pulp there in the floor of the display. And it wasn't the same elephant. <laughs> so open your Bibles to Romans. <laughs> I told you it had nothing to do with anything. But man, I laughed when I read that. I'll bring the, <laughs> I'll bring the proper version next weekend. Yeah. I laugh because you, know, you see these videos of this lion that goes rushing at this guy and then he jumps up in his arms and licks him and hugs him because it was a lion that he played with and it was a kitten or whatever. Anyway, it's like a little realism every now and then, that's all. So we just, we just finished uh, 11 chapters. We're still in Romans and we finished 11 chapters of almost pure theology, doctrine. And uh, I'm not going to give the total recap like I usually do because we're shifting gears now in Romans. But Paul has described the sin-sick world that we live in. He's identified the problem as the sin nature. It's not just that people are doing bad stuff. It's that people are corrupt. Why are they corrupt? Because they inherited a sin nature from our first father, Adam. He has clarified the role of the Jews with regard to God's plan of salvation. And he has pointed to Christ as the hope of all mankind. Uh, he poured out his heart 
uh, his, uh, in his concern for the Jews, and he reiterates that they must call upon the name of the Lord, just like everybody else, uh, and if they are to be saved. Uh, and if they're to call on uh, the name of the Lord to be saved, they have to hear about him. If they're going to hear about him, they have to have a preacher. So there's a built-in urge, the, uh, uh, urgency in Paul's call for preachers here in the book of Romans. He also predicts that many Israelites who have rejected Christ will in fact be grafted back in and warns the Gentiles not to boast or consider themselves greater than Israel. This was part of the whole tension there is that God is the God of the Jews. The Israelites are his people and the people who are benefiting at this point in history are the Gentiles. The Jews rejected them. But God is, or Paul is pointing out God's not done with the Jews. He's going to use uh, this proliferation of Gentile faith to actually provoke Israel to jealousy so that they will hunger for God, come back to him, but they have to do it through Jesus just like the Gentiles did. And the center of his theology is that Jesus Christ, God the Son, lived as a man, was crucified, and rose from the dead to make life and righteousness available to all who call on him. Just as sin and death came into the world through one man, Adam, life, righteousness, uh, come to all who believe in Jesus Christ. And it couldn't be any clearer. It's one of the things that makes Romans so great. Man's greatest need is righteousness. It is right standing with God, which requires forgiveness. Uh, and, uh, <clears throat> and no one, even though that's man's greatest need to be righteous, no one ever became righteous by trying or trying harder or by keeping the law. Uh, it's because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that God has, is able to impute righteousness to us, just like Abraham. And that's a point he makes in chapter 4, that Abraham had righteousness imputed to him. Why? Because he believed. He believed God. He also points out that when we're talking about Israel, when we're talking about the people of God, it was never the case from God's perspective that everybody in Israel was a true Israelite. Uh, the, the Israel of God were those among the Israelites, the physical descendants of Abraham, who believed. Those were the ones that God considered Israel. Uh, so now, uh, so, you know, what we see is it was always faith. It was always belief. The game didn't change in that sense when Jesus came on the scene. I say that because if somebody asks you, like I've been asked probably a hundred times, uh, if no one can be saved apart from the cross, then how could anybody in the Old Testament be saved? And what about all those people? Jesus hadn't died. How could anybody be saved? And the answer is by faith. Their obedience and righteousness did not, you know, their, their, their righteous acts did not earn their salvation any more than you and I can earn ours. It couldn't because even the best of them were not perfect, and that's the requirement. They weren't perfectly holy. They might have kept the law better than some, but they were not perfectly righteous in their own righteousness. Even our great heroes, the things that make us, things they did that make us look to them as the fathers of the faith, we know because their, their flaws and failures are recorded as well. Uh, they were, what, what we see, the things that they did that do cause us to call them great were actually what? They were expressions of their faith, of their belief in God. They obeyed because they believed God, not because they were trying to earn something from him. Uh, and this was, so they are, in that sense, they are saved just like we are. 
They, lo- they were saved in their obedience and their belief and their faith looking forward to the work of the cross. Even if they didn't understand the mechanics, even if, if they did not know the details of God plan, God's plan, they knew it was God who was saving them. And they knew that they had to trust in him and believe in him. So it's faith in God, faith in his love, faith in his plan and his power to save. They look forward, we look backward on it. Then after this comprehensive explanation of what went on, to get us saved, what went into that, he shifts into application mode with what I called last week perhaps the most important therefore in the Bible. Let's read it again. In Romans 12, beginning in verse 1, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And the first thing, first word that kind of jumps out at me from that passage is the word sacrifice. Uh, because again, looking at it from the standpoint of, well, now the, those who were not Israelites by birth, those who did not uh, keep the law, these Gentiles who were now in Christ, since they are now the true Israel, according to Paul, should we, should we not be keeping the law, including the offering of sacrifices? If he is God and I am his people now, should I not be offering these sacrifices that the law requires? Well, we are still to bring a sacrifice, but rather than a dead animal, we bring our living bodies and offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God. And what does the word sacrifice mean? It means a number of things. Uh, and and there, there's the, uh, the setting apart, the, the sanctity of the sacrifice. But what, I'm, what, I, what I, I think we would all recognize is you're giving something up. You're laying something down, right? Uh, that's the word the sacrifice in its essence, especially as it's, as it's uh, used today. And we bring ourselves as a living sacrifice. We know, and we know this anyway, that if we're going to live the way that God has called us to live, there are some things we are going to have to lay down. And some of these things might be things we don't want to lay down. It might be hard. And why do we do them? We do them because we love God and we want to obey him. But you've heard me say this. I know you have if you've been listening a number of times over the years. And here's the best scripture. Uh, that, this is the closest scripture comes to phrasing it like this. We don't live in a particular way to earn our salvation. We live a particular way in response to the salvation that God has already given us. It is a faith-filled, loving response and a reasonable response, as Paul says here, pertaining to reason. I know what God did for me. This is what I'm going to do as a result of what he did. Again, not to earn it, not to keep it, but just because it's the right response. The, the next thing he says about being conformed to this world or being transformed by the renewing of our mind, we, he's really already said, we've discussed this in earlier chapters, that the war between the spirit and the flesh is won on the battlefield of the mind. You set your mind on things above, set your mind on things of the spirit, and you'll walk after the spirit. Set your mind on carnal things, and you'll walk after the flesh. And then in verse 3, uh, let me read this, this whole next passage when we'll spend just a little bit of time on it. In verse 3, he says, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, 
but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. This theme of uh, the body, that we, are the, we, the church, are the body of Christ, is something that he returns to again. Uh, notably in 1 Corinthians. Uh, and he points out that we need every part. Just, just as, he just, and he just says it, he doesn't really develop it here. He goes in a little more depth in 1 Corinthians, but he says just like, you know, you're a, you have a body, and, you know, your finger is not your body, finger is part of your body, but, and you also have ears and noses and things like that. Uh, well, you have a nose. And, uh, I mean, you guys have noses, right? And uh, just like he said, just like the finger doesn't do the same thing the nose does, we have gifts differing. We are all part of Christ's body. We have different roles, different, different giftings, and the, and the body needs all of us. Okay? Uh, we'll talk more about the, 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 this idea that uh, what everybody brings to the mix is important. And, of course, we'll go there right now when it talks about the specific gifts. I just want to ta- stress for a moment that uh, when we talk about how we need your help, we need you for Sunday school teachers, we need you for uh, all these different positions, all these jobs, even some of them that there's not a lot of glamour in them, but we need every single one of those positions filled because they're they're, they're just like, uh, and, and again, as Paul will say in Corinthians, there are certain parts of our body that we bestow more honor on, you know? Uh, and, and some of the more comely parts of the body we don't, we don't have to cover with clothes, etc., etc. Every little piece, even the gross parts of our body, serve a function. And we need them, and we need to maintain them and care for them. And if they're missing, uh, it's not like we die, but it makes other parts of the body work harder. And that's certainly true here. If you're here, I, I absolutely believe God has something for you to do. And if you're not here or you're not doing it, that means somebody else who's probably gifted in some other area has to do your job too. All right? And so we all suffer a little bit as a result. But here's the other thing I want to point out. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, if you, if you cut your finger off, you can live without your finger. But your finger can't live without you. And it's the same way with the body. You cut yourself off from the body. This, I, and I know it kind of sounds like, oh, you're saying you've got to go to church to be saved. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that Jesus Christ said, I came to build my church. And when we talk about the individual salvation experience, that's how we get in. It does need to be an individual encounter with the Lord, an individual confession. But you are called from that moment to be a part of his body. You can survive, and I believe be saved, uh, without being hooked up with a church, you, I, but I absolutely promise you, you will not thrive and you will not fulfill what God has called you to do outside of being plugged into his body. To believe that you can know Christ and not have an encounter with his body, be committed, be connected to his body, is an absolute fallacy. You are kidding yourself. And it's absolutely, absolutely anti-scriptural position. So we need, uh, the body needs the members and the members need the body. And then this next passage, we took a deeper look at this, uh, verses 6 through 8, when he talks about the gifts, these particular gifts. We took a deeper look at this passage a while back on Wednesday nights 
on a longer series on the gifts. And we'll certainly do that again in the future. But let me just do these briefly. Uh, and uh, I, I referred when we, you know, there are three main passages on the gifts. There's this one, which uh, some would call the motivational gifts. And uh, there's the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the spiritual gifts, or as some call them, the sign gifts. I don't really like that particular phrase for reasons I'll get into someday. And then there's the passage in Ephesians chapter 4 on the ministry gifts, or as some people say, the fivefold ministry gifts. So these motivational gifts, uh, whether you call them that or not, I do agree that, that the idea that's being, uh, that Paul's communicating here is that these are gifts that God bestows on us uh, at birth. They are, these are uh, what some would call, uh, they're, they're sort of built into our character. There are certain predispositions to flow in a certain way. And uh, it's why we can develop in a number of these areas, but we gravitate towards certain gifts, certain ministries, certain expressions of faith because it's the gift that's in us. They're just, we're just that kind of people. And uh, the Discover Your, Discover Your God-Given Gifts by Don and Katie Fortune is a great treatment on this. I'll refer to a little bit to their take on this and where I might have a little bit of a disagreement. Let me get through these quickly. When he talks about prophecy, uh, having gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Now, uh, fortunes call this person, rather than calling them a prophet, they call this person a perceiver. And they point out that this is a person, they kind of see the world in black and white, they, uh, and they, they always have... Well, at least what they are convinced is a very clear line on what God's will is in a given situation. And so they're often very bold to speak up the second they see something deviating from that. And they can have a tendency to offend people with their directness, but it's because they are so sure that they're right. Uh, now, I'm, and I guess this, was where, this is one where I might quibble a little bit with where the fortunes land on this. I absolutely believe the perceiver-type person is, uh, they're there, and we absolutely need them. But when he says prophesy and according to, to, the, to your faith, I'm not sure this text really is necessarily talking about that. I, I would at least I quibble enough to say that I would leave the door open for this um, interpretation, that the person he's talking about there in verse 6, uh, if prophecy, let him prophesy in proportion uh, to our faith. This would be uh, at least possibly somebody who is more inclined to flow in the speaking gifts. Somebody who delivers a tongue or an interpretation, a word of prophecy, a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom. Uh, you know, somebody, somebody like, like Doug, uh, who, who will come up on a regular basis. Why? Because he's permanently endowed with, uh, with the gift of uh, a word of uh, knowledge, or a word, uh, with a prophecy. No, but because he's inclined to flow in that direction. Okay? He finds it more easy. He finds it easier to respond to that. Does it mean that you can't? You, I, I don't think, what I'm trying to get you to see is you can, I don't want you to ever say, I can't ever do that because that's not my gift. We all can. All right? God can use any one of us to bring forth a tongue, interpretation, a word, anything. Uh, but once, uh, you find, if you find you're inclined to do that, it's easier to flow, to flow in these things. Uh, and again, uh, there, there are, there's more than one way of looking at this. And, and if, if I'm right about this, that if it's uh, the prophecy person is the person who flows that way, doesn't mean he can't also be a, per, a perceiver. And it certainly doesn't mean that there aren't perceivers, people who see the world in black and white, uh, and that we need them. But moving on, we've also got the, uh, it says, uh, what's the next one? Or ministry. Let us use it in our ministering. And we see the word ministry, we think, 
we think really fivefold ministry. The, the very word means something religious uh, to us, but that's really not what it means here. It just simply means uh, serve, to serve. If you're a servant, if, if you're inclined, if this is the way you give, uh, the way you express your faith is to serve others, then you do it. Uh, and there are people who are clearly gifted at this. Uh, but what, what he's saying here is if we're doing this uh, in faith, yeah, that's, what, that's what it was, do it in proportion to your faith. The person who prophesies, you do it with your prophecy. The person serving, you express your faith with serving. And uh, these are the people who make the church go, who make everything go smoothly, and usually behind the scenes. We take for granted that on uh, family meal day, when we get back there, things are going to be set up, the tables, and, and it takes so many hands to get this, to get us there. So much work goes into something like that. Uh, but we've got people who are overseeing it, uh, you know, like Al- Alex and Nicole, uh, uh, Margaret for the funeral dinners. You know, these things just happen, and we just, oh, praise God, they just happen. But somebody's working hard, and even though she's leading that, her heart is the heart of a servant. There, uh, Lisa and Lisa with the Sunday school, Lisa's told me this. I hope you don't mind me sharing this. She doesn't see herself as the, you know, the, the troop commander in this. She's head of this department, but she's doing it because her heart is to serve. Uh, she's told me a dozen times, I would lay this down in a heartbeat if somebody uh, uh, had the... Uh, the passion to take this over and, and take it someplace else. But she's, why is she doing it? Because there's a need there, and she's determined to see it met, right? Is that fair enough? Huh? I, oh, I know that. I know you have a passion for the kids. I, I guess all I meant was that you don't see this as a position that you own. That's, I think, what you shared with me, right? Sorry about that. No, I know you love and have a passion for the kids. So, uh, teaching... Um, and, and I'm sorry, when I'm naming names, I'm just giving examples. This is the purpose of this message is not, now I'm going to identify everybody who flows in these gifts and thank them. That's not what this is for, all right? I'm not, I'm just giving, I'm just trying to get you to see some things concretely. And you can send me an email message saying, why didn't you name me? But I'm just trying to, all right. Uh, teachers, obviously with your teaching, teachers have a, a gift to, they have, well, a I don't know, uh, a way of, just kidding. They have a way of explaining things that make things clear. I was trying to pull a little Steve Martin joke there. What do you say one time? Some people have a way with words and other people not have way. I don't know. But a teacher can take a concept, take an idea, take a process, and explain it in a way that trans- uh, transmits that information. I am a teacher. The first time I actually took that Don and Katie Fortune test, because there's a pretty involved uh, s- a series of questions that will help you determine what your gift is, I scored like 95% on teacher, and I don't remember what my second one was. Uh, last time I took it, I scored highest on the exhorter and close second on teaching. So anyway, I'm more of an exhorter now, and we'll explain that in a little bit. Uh, mom, of course, kind of a born teacher. Uh, great at that. Dad, of course, is, uh, was uh, made his bones as a teacher, teacher slash comedian over the years, right? Is that what some people know you as down in Tulsa, right? And then your, uh, your leaders, people with a strong gift of leadership. They, they might have a strong, it might be in their organization, it might be just in their ability, or ability to rally the troops, uh, you know, uh, uh, or maybe uh, their ability to juggle a lot of balls at the same time. Matt Kreider, you know, kind of heads up several different areas in the church. Pastor Mike, uh, Merle, just kind of have, have, have a way to, uh, Merle I see kind of the rallying the troops and everything, but whatever it is, when you're, when you're in charge, when you lead, uh, do it. 
uh, out of faith. Recognize that there's a gift there. The giver, and you've got to be careful here. Uh, and it's one, I, one where I definitely wouldn't want to name names and put anybody on the spot because we have to always remember when it comes to our giving that our gifts are not measured by the amount. God's looking at the heart. Uh, when it comes to the amount, you know, Jesus himself, when he looked at the widow's mite, said this woman gave more than anybody because it was the higher, higher uh, percentage of, of her uh, net worth or her income or whatever. Uh, and again, just like everything else on this list, you cannot look at this list and say, well, I don't have the gift of the giver, so guess what? Ha ha, I don't have to give. We're all commanded to give. Right? I still believe, you know, again, this might sound a little bit legalistic. I think the starting point is, is supposed to be the tithe. I think that's the non-negotiable. I think we're supposed to give over and above the tithe. Um, but the fact is, you know, where, uh, where your uh, treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. And that cuts both ways. I think the, the way that's commonly understood is, well, you want to know where somebody's heart is, look, where they're, look at where they're putting their treasure because we invest in the things we believe in. And that's true. But the other thing is, I think we all always need to look at where do I want my heart to be? Where should my heart be? Because that's where I'm going to put my treasure. Because your heart will follow that. And that's what Jesus said. Where a man's treasure is, that's where his heart will be. Okay? So, uh, we're all called to give, but some people just, man, that's just what they are. They are born for it. Giving is the easiest thing. It is, it is the natural expression of their faith. They have resources and they believe, just, they just know these resources are for the purpose of being a blessing. So they give. And we absolutely couldn't do it without them. And uh, the mercy person. <laughs> and these are the people who uh, they just, and again, are we commanded to sow mercy, to be merciful? Yeah, we are. Because God's been merciful to us. Again, we're supposed to be merciful to those who need mercy uh, as a response to God himself who, who showered us with mercy. But some people, uh, while some people it's like, oh man, I really want to punch this person in the mouth. I really want to cut this person off, cut them out of my life. But the Bible says be merciful, so I'll give them one more chance. Uh, or, or somewhere else in the spectrum. And on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the Paulas and the Gretas who just, that's what they do. They're merciful by nature. They just can't hold anything against anybody, no matter how stupid it is or how many times they blow it, because, oh, aren't they just precious in God's eyes? And they are. And we need these people to show us, in every one of these areas, what the heart of God is like. We just, every one of us is, finds it easier to be one or two of these things than we do the rest of these things on the list. Why? Because this is the gift God has put in us. And again, we don't ignore the rest of them because, well, I don't have to do anything else because I'm a teacher. I don't have to do anything else because I'm a mercy person. We're all supposed to be doing all of it the best we can. But we can look to examples in our midst at how to do it better. Now, uh, more into Christian living, beginning in verse 9. Let's, uh, let's read through this next section real quick. I think I'm going to read up through 18. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. Distributing to the needs of the saints. Given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who, who rejoice. Weep with with those who weep, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. 
If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Let's stop there and uh, go back just really quickly and look at a couple of highlights here. And the first thing I see in that verse 9 is, abhor what is evil. And I contrast that, and you can turn there if you want, or you can listen while I read it, back in the first chapter of Romans. Romans 1, 28. I'll begin in, in uh, verse 28. We could, we could start earlier or later, but this is a good, good place as any. In Romans 1, 28, it says, and, even, and this is where Paul is describing the corrupt world. This is where he sets the stage for talking about sin. And he said, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And this is one of the clearest marks of, uh, of the corrupt nature of, this, uh, of, the unredeemed, of unredeemed mankind, is that we live in a world that celebrates things that in the lifetime of many of us in this room uh, used to be considered evil. And everybody knew they were. And there were always people doing it. But we all knew that certain things were bad and certain things were good. And now it's like, well, and I'm not, I'm not talking about any, any one thing. It's even interesting that the language, that's bad. And I'm not saying you can't ever say that, but it's interesting that the word bad has been taken to mean something just the opposite, right? Uh, and I think it's indicative of something and, what's this, and what does this verse say? Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. And that word cling, so when I see that, there's an image that I can't escape of something trying to be, that, that somebody's trying to pull this away from me. That it's slipping away and we need to cling to these things. Not just hope that the society changes. Not just ignore this stuff. But to cling to the things that are good. Continue to define them of good. And to hate the things that are evil. We ought to be different. Our tastes should be different from the, world, from the uh, unredeemed world around us. Be kindly affectionate to one another. These, this next verse is simply a matter of putting others before yourself. Remember the old Sunday school lesson, the key to happiness, the key to joy, joy. Jesus, others, yourself. We know to put Jesus first. Sometimes we forget to put other people first, but so much of this boils down to loving one another and putting the interests and uh, the benefit of somebody else before your own. I'm going to do this not because it's good for me. I'm doing this because it's good for you. And guess what happens? Everybody benefits when we live like that. And of course, the more people there are living like that, the better it is. But we're called to do it regardless. Um, in, in verse 11, they're not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. There is a, uh, I don't know, I don't want to sound like the guy who, boy, I can remember when. Yeah, you know, things were a lot better when such and such. But this uh, fervency, that I think was kind of one of the hallmarks of the, of the uh, early days of, of this church and many churches, really the charismatic movement at large. There was an excitement. Uh, I was reading some notes 
uh, and, and I won't share the whole details. I don't remember the whole details. I was reading some notes that uh, Keith Harris had written a while back. I just happened to be rereading them not too long ago. But uh, he, he was looking at some things that, that, that he felt the Spirit of God had laid on him. hope you don't mind me sharing this. I didn't get your permission. Uh, about the things he would like to see uh, happening in the church. Not just our church, but the church at large. And one of the things was a rapid process of maturity. Now, you can only grow up so fast in one sense. On the other in the other sense, I can remember people getting saved, and then within a year or less, man, they are plugged in, learning, teaching, serving, uh, doing things. And this happens here today, too, all right? But it's rarer, and it's rarer especially, for some reason, among the young people, including my young people. There's this sense that, eh, I don't really have to do anything yet because, uh, come on, I'm just a kid. Don't expect that much of me. Well, where is this fervency where is the excitement the the and and i think part of it is just this there's a we don't have a strong sense of need and part of it is i don't know i think maybe we've lost a sense of the imminent uh, the the imminence of christ's return this was one of the things uh, and i'm going off on a little bit of a tangent here i'll get back on track here in a second we're closer to being done than you might think we are anyway but one of the things that really got me interested in the bible and in christianity in the first place uh, not too long after I got saved, was talk about the last days when people were talking about the tribulation, the rapture, and ultimately the return of Christ. Now, we'll get there. When we get to Revelation, we'll talk about this stuff. Uh, and it doesn't, for the purposes of what I'm talking about now, it doesn't matter whether you're pre-trib, post-trib, or whatever. The thing was, we were all convinced that the end, whether it was the rapture or whether it was the tribulation or return, these things were imminent. I mean, we expected them within a decade or less in some cases. And so that sort of fueled our fervency. We don't have forever uh, to accomplish the thing God's, uh, God has called us to accomplish. We need to be about kingdom work. And we didn't do it perfectly. And it didn't, you know, that urgency kind of waxed and waned over the years. And that's just, again, that's just one part of it. But fervency is something that God expects, right? Diligence. Uh, it's not just a matter of excitement. Diligence there implies study and work and making these things happen on purpose. And then in verse 12, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. The uh, hope, patience, tribulation, all these things are tied together in the promise of Christ's return and the assurance of our bodily resurrection. Remember, that's what Paul pointed to as the blessed hope for the Christian, is that yeah, we're, we're, we can absolutely rejoice and we can trust that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us and lives powerfully through us, transforms us, but we still aren't, our, 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 uh, we haven't experienced the completion of our salvation until the resurrection. That's something we look forward to. Yes, he has rescued us. He has redeemed us. Our spirits are secure, but our bodies have not yet been changed and they will where you're going to exchange this corruptible flesh for flesh that is incorruptible and eternal and that is how we endure tribulation knowing that no matter how good god is to us here and he's mighty mighty good the best is still yet to come and uh, uh distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality this is something that rubs some people the wrong way but paul reiterates this in galatians when he says uh, do good unto all men but especially those of the household of faith clearly i would embrace uh i do embrace the uh the idea of just uh, we're, we're 
We're to help the poor. We're to be generous, okay? And if uh, somebody comes to your house and they need food, give them food. If you see somebody out begging and God moves on you, don't be afraid to give them money. You know, sometimes it's better to offer them something that, you know, because you never know. I mean, I don't want to be the, the guy who just who believes that every single person out there looking for a handout just wants to go spend it on drugs and alcohol. I'm sure that's not true. But I never know, you know, what to believe when I see these signs. But I do want to give, and I want to support people. And, and the thing that's great is we support ministries that do know how to sort through that stuff. Uh, Restoration Urban Ministries being Exhibit A. You know, that's what they do. So I'd rather give to this church that gives to that ministry then have to scratch my head and worry, does this guy really have bone cancer? Does this guy, is this guy really homeless? Is he really a vet on any of this stuff? But while we are absolutely called to minister to those without, our first responsibility, according to this, according to Galatians, is to one another. doesn't say we can't help anybody else. You know, we've got a food bank here in town. It's housed at the Church of Christ, uh, but it's not an overtly Christian organization. Well, why do we support it? Because there's not an overtly Christian food bank in St. Joe. But we do support it. Why? Because we believe in the dignity of of, uh, human life. And we want people to have food. Okay? But you need to know, and and I'm, I'm sure I've talked about this, and some of you have experienced this, we get calls all the time and visitors who stop in and they always want money. And I get it. I feel sorry for them. And, I, I want, and some, people, some people we know because we recognize them because they come back again and again. They work the system. Uh, but some people, man, I believe that some of these people are in genuine need. And how bad does your life have to be before you just walk into a strange church and just ask somebody for money? Things, may, again, maybe they've just, hey, this is a pretty easy way to make a living, but I'm not that cynical. I know some people really need it. But some people call. I need help. And people we don't know. I'm not talking about church people. I'm not even talking about St. Joe people. I'm talking about people who call from Rantoul, Kankakee, Champaign-Urbana, of course. And they call every church. I'm going to get kicked out of my house this week unless you can help me out. I need $500 to, to make my rent check. Uh, I, I'm $800 behind on my power bill. Uh, this, this, I need this. I need three nights in a hotel so I can be with my sick mother who's in the hospital. And my heart goes out to these people because, again, I don't know if they're telling the truth or not, but I'm thinking, man, if they are, it really hurts. But if, if, if I acted on nothing more than my heart going out, this church would be broke. We wouldn't have this place to meet today. You'd go through it in, in no time, wouldn't we? You, you've seen that. You've heard this. Brenda, wouldn't we? If, if we answered every call for help, even the legitimate ones, every call for help outside this church, we would have nothing to give. It's just not what we're called to do. So what's Paul talking about here? Distribute to the needs of the saints. That's what faith works is all about. Uh, benevolence. This is, this is the ministry for people in our midst, people that we know can work with. And so we're not just throwing money at it. It's like we're going to help you get this under control. We're going to help you budget. We're going to figure out why you're in this mess. And because we're brothers and sisters, we're going to do not, we're not just going to rescue you in this moment. We're going to lift you out of this mess. We're going to buy, we're going to uh, bind ourselves to you and, and, and be part of... Uh, well, we're all the same body, right? I'm helping you, I'm helping me. Well, I skipped in, in back there in verse 12, continuing steadfastly in prayer. I've said something about that the last two weeks. How uh, this is, if we're doing everything else, but we're not praying, if we're not consciously bringing these issues and our, and our growth and our ministry before God on purpose, then we are really wasting our time doing anything else. And then um, in verse 14, this is when we start talking about our enemies. 
And he'll, he'll get there again in verses uh, 19 and 20. It's really interesting. In verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. That word bless there, uh, a lot of you know that is eulageo, uh, where we get the word eulogy. And it simply means to speak well of. To speak well of. And uh, we just don't badmouth people just because they're badmouthing you, even if they're treating you bad. Uh, and one of the ways you can speak well of them is to pray for them, right? Uh, we'll come back to that idea here in a second. Let me, let me uh, kind of race through the rest of these. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. This is, uh, sometimes we want to immediately, if somebody's weeping, cheer them up. You know, I think uh, Solomon wrote in Proverbs, it's, if somebody's sad, if they're in mourning and you try to cheer them up with a cheerful song, it's like vinegar and soda. You know, it's like uh, it's fingernails on a chalkboard. Some people, it, there, there's a time for that. But if somebody's weeping, weep with them because you should hurt that they're hurting. But if they're rejoicing, rejoice. Well, why might they be rejoicing? Uh, and I think one of the things that's addressing in this verse is covetousness. If you're rejoicing because of a blessing that you received, uh, shame on me if I'm thinking, man, I deserve that more than they did. Why does everybody else always get a blessing? I could use that. Uh, man, I'm rejoicing with you. I'm happy for you that God has blessed you. If you're, whatever you're rejoicing about, I'm rejoicing with you, unless you're rejoicing over something evil, like those people back in Romans 1. Now, and then uh, 16, don't think more highly of yourself. Don't think that, that you are above associating with certain people because you're more educated, better looking, even more spiritual. On purpose, you determine to associate with the lowly. And then in verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. You need to respect, have respect for what is right. And uh, in the sight of all men. I think we should be unafraid to embrace, unafraid to encourage the good, the pure, and the right. And what I'm talking about, this, this is the kind of thing I think will play out in, uh, in the arena of social media, our entertainment, and other areas of our lives. And I'm, I'm not trying to be vague, but I am kind of rushing through this because he'll get into more detail here in chapter 14, I think, about how this is going to play out in our, in our public living. But... The fact is, we ought to be able to differentiate between the good and the bad and publicly encourage the things that are good. All right? It's all right from time to time, I think, to attack the things that are bad. Uh, But um, this verse is specifically talking about having public regard for the things that are good. And then in verse 18, this is a great one to live by. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now you know. And even just by the way it's phrased, and you certainly know by experience, it is not possible to live at peace with all men. Paul's simply saying, if there's an issue, if there's going to be a, a, uh, any sort of turbulence, any lack of peace, it better not be your fault. You do everything you can to be at peace with all men. You can't control what they do. But don't let, this, uh, don't let any sort of animosity uh, spring from how you have acted in these relationships. Um, beloved, verse 19 this is, this is an interesting verse, or two verses. Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. <laughs> now what is this verse saying? Because you know what it looks like it's saying. 
the meaner they are to you, the nicer you are to them, the hotter hell's going to be for them when they finally get there. <laughs> I'm not going to curse you. I'm going to do good because the better I am to you in the face of your meanness, the worse hell's going to be for you. Now, is that, could that possibly be what this verse is really saying? Probably not, right? That's a pretty mean way of, of looking at things. There's, uh, there is a story, and I've read this many times in, in more than one place. I kind of... I kind of reject it. It just does, doesn't have the ring of truth. I like it as an illustration, but uh, it, it's the, the, the uh, claim that they make is back in the day, uh, and, and I'm sure this part's true. You know, you had to keep a hearth. You had to have live coals. You know, whether you had a roaring fire or not, you always had to have something. You had to be able to get that fire going so that you could cook, so that you could do whatever. Uh, you, you always had to have quick access to fire. But if you let your coals completely die, that meant you had to go to a neighbor's, borrow some live coals so that you could come back and start your fire. And uh, they would say, you know, they would carry them on their heads, according to this explanation. And they're saying, don't just give them a few hot coals, give them a heap of hot coals so that they know they won't go out when they get there. Okay, that makes, kind of makes sense, but it's a little bit too much of a reach. And in context, it doesn't really work, does it? Because it's saying, hey, you know, you bless them. Uh, even if they curse you, what is it? Uh, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Well, that follows the uh, leave, leave place for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I think the best explanation to that is simply that they will be burned. He was talking about coals of fire on their head, that their conscience will burn them that when you're doing this, they will be so smitten, so stricken by their own uh, lack of kindness and appreciation that, they could, that your kindness, as an expression of the kindness of God, may le lead them to repent. Uh, and if they fail to repent, then their guilt is worse before God, right? Because of our kindness to them. But let God sort that stuff out. You don't ever give up on them. Um, now, verse 21 kind of sums it up when it says, do not, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Uh, there's much more to this statement than just kill him with kindness, right? First, of, first uh, of course, is this. Jesus is our example. He didn't just die for those who were following him on earth. He had his followers, he had his disciples, and he didn't go to the cross just for them. He died for his enemies. His love and concern were manifest in his prayer for those who nailed him to the cross. Remember? Love. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. He prayed that for the people that were physically doing the act of killing him. And look at this in Mark chapter 15. Mark fifteen thirty-seven, And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. This was a man who watched this whole thing play out he heard jesus's prayers he heard him cry out heard his confession saw the result and all of that led this centurion to confess that jesus was the son of god and then uh that reminds me the the, the uh, rousseau jean-jacques rousseau said that socrates died like a philosopher jesus christ died like a god and i'll end with this praise and worship team you can come up here if we find it difficult to be kind to our enemies, to treat our enemies like we are being instructed to treat our enemies in the Word of God here. 
we better remember one thing, and that is that we were once enemies of God. And what is it that turned us around? And you think, well, I was never in a, I never shook my fist at God. I never declared war on God. You were still at, in a, a, a relationship that could only be described as enmity because you were in sin, you were pursuing your own desires. You hadn't bowed the knee before him as Lord and Savior. But look at this in Romans chapter 5. Romans is a good book to go to if we want to talk about righteousness, right? Romans 5, beginning in verse 6, says this, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Listen to this, verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That is good, good news. Stand up with me. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.